please turn also to the book of Ephesians. Our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. The lesson will be on the sword of the Spirit. We'll begin reading from Ephesians 6, verse 10 through verse 18. This is God's holy word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of this holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you for you have given us uh, the full armor. That this is not armor that we uh, manufacture for ourselves, but it is armor that you have provided. Father, we pray in thanks for your word indeed is true. We pray, Father, that we might trust in you, that we might trust in ourselves less. Father, we pray that you would help us to be skilled swords people, uh, that we would use your word well, that we would use it rightly. Father, we pray in thanks for your Holy Spirit is the one who pierces us to the very heart such that we might believe upon Jesus Christ that we might delight in the gospel. Father, we pray also that you would help us to submit to you in your word, that we would obey your commandments, that we would trust in your promises. Father, we pray if there are any here who have not committed their life to Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you would do the mighty work of conversion. Father, remind us of your great power. Remind us, Father, of our great weakness. We pray, Father, that your son would be exalted and that your servant would be humble. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Here I think about how uh, there might be in your home certain articles. For example, if you have a piano, it might be a very expensive piano. Uh, if you possessed uh, or you were willed something like a Stradivarius violin, it might be worth a whole lot. But the possession of a musical instrument does not make you a musician. I can testify to this. That if you uh, have a musical instrument in your home, and uh, certainly anyone can play it, but what comes out is called cacophony. No good. Doesn't sound good. It hurts the ears. You think also about the matter of a sword. Imagine you had a sword from uh, your, your 
ancestors, knights who had a sword. And if you had this sword, it doesn't make you a swordsman or a swordswoman. Possessing a weapon does not make you lethal. It's the proper use of it. So also, if you have a, a good book on martial arts, it doesn't make you a skilled martial artist. So also, possessing the word of God does not equate to being skilled and having knowledge, intimate knowledge of God's word, of being a spiritual swordsman or swordswoman. Here, we are commanded that we take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It requires that we study God's word, that we spend time meditating upon it, that we take the F, make the effort to, to memorize it, that we would pray and ask for God's guidance, that we would see wonderful things in his word, in his law, and that we would desire to apply it daily in our lives. Here, as we think about the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul is wrapping up, and he reminds us at the end of Ephesians, in Ephesians 6 that we're in, that he's given us the full armor, and that this full armor is of our utmost necessity. If we ignore it, if we neglect it, it would be dangerous for our souls. He who is a faithful Christian will not, must not neglect it. So we see in this passage that God's word is likened to the sword, inspired and powered by the Holy Spirit for your spiritual battle. God's word is likened to the sword, inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit for your spiritual battle. We'll look at this in three points. The first, the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the word. Second, the Holy Spirit's role with the word. Third, the Holy Spirit's usage of the word. Here, the first point, the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the word. Here we think to the book of Ephesians and how the Apostle Paul is wrapping up that he addresses the very matters of the gospel, of spiritual truths, Ephesians 1 through 3, uh, he speaks about how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in your salvation, doing the mighty work, and that we ought to believe these truths. We ought to believe these doctrines from Ephesians 1 through 3. There's also the application, how then shall you live if you believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, if you believe what he's done for you. Then Ephesians 4 through 6 speaks about how then we ought to live. How will it affect our lives? This very idea of being a new creation, <clears throat> of being made new in Jesus Christ, that we would die to our old ways, that we were created, uh, created in true righteousness and holiness. Here, we think about how if we're believing what God has told us, and we're obeying him at his commandments, then you and I must be, we will be under attack. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. There will be opposition against you. It should be no surprise. It will come. Here, we think also about the context of the armor of God. That if you and I neglect this armor, if we think lightly about it, if we think, you know, there's six, or perhaps you could say seven, seven items, uh, we, we don't need all of them. I'll, I'll just 
to put on the lighter ones, the ones that don't make me look like a freak in public, here, what, what we ought to say is the neglect of any one of them is dangerous. You notice the repetition. So we, we go through the, the, each of the pieces of armor. It seems like I'm talking about similar things, talking about truth, talking about the gospel, talking about the attacks, the lies that come from, uh, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. This whole idea of our own desires, our own fleshly desires in our weakness, it can start to play tricks on us regarding our convictions. You realize that. The, the convictions start to become fluid. They start to become uh, like jello when, when our desires kick in. Uh, this, is the, this is the body over mind, so to say. Here, we think about the armor that God has given us. And the warning there is the neglect of them, of any one of these articles, is dangerous. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So if you neglect God's armor that he has given you, then you will not be able to withstand on the evil day, that you will not be able to stand firm. Here, we think about the individual articles. I'm going to give a brief review of it. We have the belt of truth. This is the first piece of armor that you put on. It uh, helps to get your garment, your tunic that you're wearing, uh, out of the way, that you don't trip over it. That uh, here, we think about the importance of truth. And knowing truth means knowing Jesus Christ, knowing him as your Lord and Savior. Ephesians 4.21, indeed, that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Knowing truth is knowing a person. Because Jesus is the truth. Here, he is the measure or the standard of truth. He defines truth. And when Satan attacks, he's going to attack with lies. He's going to attack with deception. And knowing the truth then, knowing Jesus Christ, is your defense against it. We have also the second article, the breastplate of righteousness. This entails both the righteousness by faith apart from works, this is in justification, that you might have your sins forgiven or sin being pardoned. There's also the breastplate idea, the righteousness that the Holy Spirit works in you, works in his people in sanctification. This is the sin that is subdued in your life. We have also gospel footwear. The gospel shoes grant you protection. It gives you peace with God. Knowing the gospel and believing the gospel, it gives you peace with God, that you are reconciled to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. With it then, you have stability, because you have peace within. You ever see people who seem to be unstable? They're at this extreme one day and the other extreme the next day. Well, that's just a reflection. That's just a symptom of the instability because of their lack of peace within. So having the gospel and believing it, you have peace with God, then you can have peace within. And then having the gospel shoes, you have mobility. You can bring peace to others. Here, Christian maturity is never moving on from the gospel. You never graduate in the Christian life. Oh, I've understood the gospel and I've moved on from it. No, that's, that's complete error. That 
with Christian maturity, there comes an ever-growing dependence and understanding and love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's also the shield of faith. Faith must have its proper object. The world often talks about, oh, hey, you have this faith, I have that faith. They we're all we're all one because we all have faith. Well, wait a minute. What is your faith in? Oh, it doesn't matter. At least we have faith. Well, faith has no objective power. Uh, you could have you could have faith. Uh, supposedly, uh, you have the Hindu religion where they have millions of gods. And it's no big deal if you just take one more and add it to the list. Hey, there's no issue with that. But if we start talking about an objective faith, faith must be in the right person. It must be in the right thing. If your faith is in faith, it's worthless. If your faith is in an idol, then it's the worship of demons. The only faith that saves is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the instrument by which you receive justification, by which you receive the free offer of the gospel, you pass from death to life. It's your duty also to grow in faith. That God's work in your life will be in proportion to your faith. Meaning that the blessings and uh, the joy, the satisfaction in your life is a function of your faith, the quantity of your faith, the growth of your faith. We also have the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation protects the Christian's hope. If you destroy a warrior's hope of victory, you destroy the warrior. He will no longer fight. Satan loves to see it when you have all the provisions of God and yet you're in despair. He rejoices in that. He wants you to tell others about your despair so that they will have despair too. But instead, God has given us great hope in the gospel. He's given us the hope of eternal life. You can actually know that you're saved. The world says, you are just arrogant. You see how some of these other religions, the uh, false manifestations of Christianity, they'll say that assurance of salvation is pride. Now, if you're saying, I know I'm saved because I'm so great at this and that, that is pride. But if you're saying, I know that I'm saved because God promised salvation to sinners, to those who repent and believe upon Jesus Christ, that's not pride. That's trusting in God's promises. Satan desires to destroy your hope. Here, hope that's founded upon faith brings patience as you await God's promises. Hope in Christ purifies your soul. And yes, we ought to see that there's a repetitious overlapping of these articles of armor. And we come today to the sword of the spirit. Notice that the previous five articles were defensive. They were defensive articles. The sword is both defensive and offensive. The sword is both defensive and offensive. It's defensive because a sword is often used to parry the attacks of the evil one or to parry the other, other sword attacks. You parry thrusts and slashes, and the sword is also offensive. And, and I will explain that one. We're not to use the, the word of God to attempt to offend others. Rather, it's to gain ground. It's to advance the kingdom of God. Here, perhaps you're asking, 
there in verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So why is the Word of God called the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God is inspired. Literally, it's God-breathed. This is not the same as, oh, I watched this YouTube video and it was so inspiring. No, no, it's not that at all. This is God-breathed. There's a difference between listening to a, a video, uh, reading a, a, um, a book uh, from mere men that's inspiring, that, that caused you to, uh, to have a, a new desire, a new hope, whatever it is. That the word of God is inspired means it is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that it's breathed out by God. The world will claim that the Bible was written by mere men, and many of them. And then Satan will mock, hey, since there's so many different people at so many different times, so many different backgrounds, there must be a whole lot of contradictions. Well, on one hand, there's truth in that. The Bible was written by many different men. But ultimately, there is only one author to the Holy Bible, and that is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who penned, he is the one who inspired those men. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is why you think about the Old Testament, the frequency in the Old Testament of the statement, Thus says the Lord. Constantly there is a repetition, Thus says the Lord. It was Moses saying, it was the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord. It was the recording of God's word. Here, we think about the inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal, meaning it's not merely the doctrines, it's not merely the ideas that are divine. The words themselves, verbal, it's the words themselves. And it's plenary, meaning all of it, not some of it. It's not merely that the Bible contains the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. Every word that's in the Bible is there by the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit. It's not a mechanical dictation. It wasn't if God spoke and then someone just jotted down what God wrote. No, God, God used the limitations of men. He used the education. Here, we think about, uh, think about the Apostle John. He was a fisherman. And we're... Where do seminary students first learn Greek? Well, in the writings of John, either John, uh, the Gospel of John or 1 John. Typically, it's 1 John because it's easier. When you think about a fisherman, right? He didn't have a great education, and uh, Greek probably wasn't even his first language. And there were limitations, right? He didn't write in the same way as the Apostle Paul or Luke the physician. They, they had a much uh, higher view or a much higher education and the difficulty of, of translating that Greek is manifested and so it is here we think about the mere words it's not mere words 1 Corinthians 2.13 
which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Here, it's the very words that God has given us. That the Lord Jesus, Matthew 24, 35, said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So it's the Holy Spirit, uh, the sword of the Spirit, because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we must not neglect it. We must cherish it. We must obey it. We must believe it. And we must use it for our daily defense. <clears throat> so that's the first point, the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the word. We have the second point, the Holy Spirit's role with the word. The Holy Spirit always works in union with the word of God. It's never contrary to it, and it never undermines it. Think about what the Lord Jesus said when he promised the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit comes and he brings to remembrance all that Jesus has said to you. So Jesus being the word of God, the Holy Spirit then, he doesn't come to reveal something that's completely foreign to the word. He doesn't come to reveal something that comes after the word of Jesus. There's no additional revelation the Holy Spirit brings, and certainly not contrary to the word of God. The Holy Spirit comes, and he will teach you all things, that he is the teacher. The first thing that he teaches you as a Christian is the importance, the centrality of God's word for your life, for your for your spiritual safety, for your spiritual growth and well-being. The Holy Spirit convinces you of this importance. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that we read earlier in verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We all know that bread is important. You can't live without it. But here, we must understand that God's word is that much more important. If you are going to live spiritually, if you're going to have spiritual life, it depends entirely on the word of God. To cut someone off from the word of God is to cut them off from life. The natural man understands the necessity of food to sustain life, but it's only the Holy Spirit that persuades you about God's word of absolute necessity for you to have spiritual life. Think about what happens when God judges a nation. What he does is he cuts off his word right. from coming. We might think about some nations where men are saying, we're going to cut off the word. If you try to bring a Bible in, in our language for our people, we will block it out. That doesn't work. God finds ways to bring the word in. But when God himself is the one who cuts off his word from a people, that is when he's saying there is judgment. Here, we think also about the Holy Spirit being the one who illumines our hearts and our minds. He's the one who grants us understanding of his word. 
How are we going to understand these things? How, how, how are we to know what God wants for us? Well, the Holy Spirit, we're told in Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. God is the one. We ought to pray for this. We ought to pray that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might understand his word. The Holy Spirit also leads his people correctly to interpret God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Other versions say um, accurately dividing the word of truth. So that you think about the interpretation of God's word. Isn't this where Satan will often attack? Because you have various ways by which a passage or a verse may be interpreted. Now, this is not saying that a Christian that's led by the spirit will never interpret a verse wrongly. Part of our growth is that we learn what once was wrong and now is right. But we, are, we ought to understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us in the proper interpretation of God's word. So that's the Holy Spirit's role with the word. We have the third point, the Holy Spirit's usage of the word. How does the Holy Spirit use the word? First and foremost, we see that the Holy Spirit uses his word to pierce us to the heart. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Peter is preaching. He's preaching to Jews. And as these Jews are hearing the word of God, we're told that they were pierced to the heart. When you think about the sword, you think about the sword, what is more dangerous for the sword? A slash or impale? Throughout history, impaling has always been the more dangerous task. Slashing is easier. It's a little, it requires a little less effort, a little less accuracy. But the Holy Spirit who uses the word impales us. He pierces us to the very heart. That these men were, were pierced to the heart. What shall we do? This is what the word of God does for us. It reveals to us our true state. That we are, in, we are sinners in need of his mercy. And that we begin to understand. We apprehend the mercy of God offered to us in Jesus Christ. That we see, oh wait a minute. That which I need is found in Jesus Christ. Being cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit uses the word to pierce us to the heart. That we might see our need for the gospel. Being sinners and being left with that would only lead to despair. But the work of the Spirit goes hand in hand with the hope of the gospel. So that you might see, oh, I have this great problem. And God has convicted me of this, that I'm a sinner. I need to repent. But the hope of the gospel is we have in Jesus Christ your perfect righteousness. And that this is what the Holy Spirit does with his word. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? You realize that he is the one who pierces you to the heart. He is the one who allows 
us to see, spiritual eyes to see the truth of his word. This truth is speaking of me. It's not speaking about someone else. Well, of course, it speaks truth about everyone else, but it speaks truth to me and to you. Here, we think about the analogy of spiritual warfare. In any nation, you have uh, the government or the king issuing out uh, the equipment for soldiers. That uh, no, no soldier uh, is supposed to come with his own gear. Uh, he's supposed to receive the goods that his government has provided him. This is the whole idea behind GI, government issue. Uh, it was perhaps a sword back then. It is a battle rifle now. And uh, you think about a soldier in a physical war who would not take up a primary offensive weapon, whether it be a sword or a battle rifle. If the soldier said, hey, I, I have the defensive pieces, I've got my helmet, my breastplate, uh, my shoes, uh, my, my belt. Hey, I don't need that rifle. I, I don't need that sword. No, no, that's, that's dangerous not to have it. Likewise, the sword of the spirit is not an optional piece of equipment. There are no spiritual pacifists. There are no spiritual non-combatants. This is true for little children. The little children don't fight in a physical war. At least we hope they don't. In, in the world, we see that uh, they, they are required to at places. But in spiritual battle, there are no pacifists. There are no non-combatants. Women, children, you're all part of that spiritual battle. You're all called to take up arms, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You're all called to be skilled with it, to use it. Here, we think about how this statement, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is not pious advice. This is not, hey, uh, it's optional, but it, it would be great if you did. No, this is a command. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's a requirement here. There's an urgency here that you would take it up. The sword of the Spirit is no good. Merely collecting dust on the bookshelf. How often have you had this happen? <clears throat> we have so many Bibles now, so maybe this doesn't really apply. But uh, you, you go to church, and then you, for some reason, misplace your Bible. Well, when do you realize that you misplaced your Bible? Is it when you're getting ready for church the next Sunday? I hope not. Uh, hopefully you would have said, hey, I, I'm going to go look for that one Bible that I have, or you would have opened up another one in your home. Or how often do you, do you say, it says somewhere in the Bible, have you heard that? It says, hey, wait a minute, doesn't, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible? And we have the privilege of concordances, or you can, you can look up things on Google, right? You type in there a few words, and hey, there you can find it. But this is some indication to you and to me, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not as familiar with God's word as I should be. That maybe years ago, right, you, you read things, and this is true as people get older, that our brains don't quite remember as well. And then here you ask, well, uh, I've read it. I was a, once a diligent student of God's word. 
No, you must be a diligent student now. Uh, whatever you practice on your piano, being a concert pianist, well, if you were that five years ago, well, here you talk to some of these professional musicians. And they say that if you don't practice for a day, they can tell. It's noticeable. If you don't practice for three days, then he says, other people notice. So also for you and for me, that we must be trained with the sword of the Spirit. Here, there is no substitute for the Word of God. There's no substitute for the sword of the Spirit when Satan attacks. Imagine you respond to, to Satan with your own wisdom, mere opinions of yours. In comparison, they're worthless. What about the teachings of antiquity? Hey, this is the way my ancestors did it. That's not going to hold much water. It's not going to be a defense against the attacks of Satan. So would not be your ancestors or whether not be your political party. This is the way we've done for the last few decades. Doesn't amount to much. Only the word of God is a legitimate defense. Here, we think about the importance of being skilled with the sword. You must have an intimate knowledge of God's word in order for it to be useful at all times. Here I ask, have you read through the Bible in its entirety? Have you read through the Bible in its entirety? This should be a goal for every one of us. And after that question, after you've read through the Bible in its entirety, how often do you read through the Bible? Very easy as I talk to people, ministers even, seminary students, that they read a whole lot of spiritual books, theological books, but the question is, how well do you know the sword? Here, we talk to other religious groups that we, we know of a, a, a rabbi. So he's an Orthodox Jew. And as I talk to other Christians who know him, they say, hey, you know, he should know his Old Testament, but he, he studied a whole lot in the traditions of the rabbis throughout time. He doesn't actually know the Old Testament well. This, is, this can be true not only of other religions. This can be true for you as a Christian as we study through the history of the church and the historic views of any various passages or any various subjects. We must be familiar with the Word of God, and we must study that primarily. If you're lacking in time, if you're very busy, it might mean you have to cut out your fun reading of novels. You might have to cut out your reading of other theological books. May you not neglect the Word of God. I'm not saying there's any requirement that we read through the Bible once a year, every year. But you must get through the Bible regularly. That the daily reading ought to be the pattern. And if you don't do things daily, if you don't do things every day, then there's a tendency to neglect it. Here, we ought to meditate on the Word of God. Meaning that besides just the study of it, the reading of it, we ought to reflect upon it. Psalm 1 speaks about the godly man. He meditates on God's Word day and night. Here, it's so easy for us when we think about a subject. Think about a subject, and then you start looking through the concordance of your Bible uh, every time this word or this subject is mentioned, and you can look through there and say, okay, I only see two sections in the whole Bible that address this topic, whatever that topic is. But then you realize, as you 
meditate on the word of God, so much of it addresses that subject. If you don't want it to be there, you won't find it. But if you're searching for God's will, for God's ways, his perfect ways, then you realize how much the word of God addresses your everyday need. Here, we ought to hide the scriptures in our heart that we might not sin against God. This is a reminder that we ought to have a desire to memorize his word. That you ought to do so, especially when you're young. Because as we get older, our brains are not so fresh. And it seems like the things that you remember from your youth, you keep in old age. You try to do it later on in life, it's much more difficult. That even in our old age, we should still desire to do it. That if we're in the word often, that's important. So that we might meditate upon it and memorize it. We think also about the usage of the word. That we have the perfect example of our Lord Jesus in his temptation there in Matthew 4. That we address the matter of the comparison. That Jesus is the perfect Adam. He's the perfect second Adam who came. That he did what the first Adam could not do. We think about the ideal state of Eden. And in contrast, you have the desert that was harsh. It was cruel. It was, hot. It was dry. It was hot. Jesus was hungry. And then you have Jesus who obeyed perfectly. He is without sin. Adam had every advantage in the Garden of Eden, yet he still sinned. Here, you think about how Satan came with these three attacks. Jesus followed with these three parries, these three defenses, these three responses. Notice that Jesus' responses all came from the Old Testament, specifically the book of Deuteronomy. It's a reminder to you and to me that we are not New Testament Christians. We're a whole Bible Christians. The Old Testament, the New Testament is the word of God. The The Old Testament is not any less the word of God than the New Testament. Here, we think about this first attack. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Obey your thirst is what Satan is saying. Obey your thirst. Obey your hunger. Follow your desire at all costs. Listen to your heart. Hey, whatever, whatever phrase you get. It's just like Esau. Right? Esau comes back. He, it wasn't 40 days that he was hunting in the wilderness. And he comes back. He sees his brother. Hey, you made this delicious uh, stew. Hey, give me some of that. Hey, you sell me your birthright first. Hey, I'm about to die here. I'm starving to death. What good is my birthright? Sure, I'll, I'll take the stew. Obviously, he was thinking about his immediate need. Here, this often comes up. You think about this attack. Satan is attempting to get you to doubt the goodness, the providence of God. Hey, if God really loved you, he would have provided better circumstances for you. This, this uh, hey, for example, Adam, because hey, this woman that you gave me, right? She, she, gave, she gave me the fruit. I, I, it, it, it's you, God. You gave me the woman. Right here. Any of the circumstances that we face, we can, we can talk about, hey, God, it, it, it's not good. You, you didn't give me what was good. That, that's why I failed. No. Here, we ought to understand that what God provides us is the very best. It's the heart of the, it's the, heart of the Tenth Commandment. Is it that God deals out the goods 
and his dealings. We can't claim that we, we got a bad hand. Here, it's also a test of, are you willing to use your power, illegitimate use of power for your personal gain? The power and authority is given to serve other people, to protect others. Jesus is Perry. From Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We see the importance of God's word for us. What is best for your children? What is best? What do they need? We start to understand education is not neutral. We cannot trust non-Christians to educate our children. As you start to understand, wait a minute. There, there, there's, no, there's no teaching that's somehow neutral between they're not for God, they're not against God. That there is uh, somehow an inherent manifestation of unbelief. It's, it's true all the more when you move away from the sciences. I, I've had a number of professors I can think back where I might say, hey, based on how this man or how this woman taught me, I could see that this person's actually a Christian. And there are others who clearly, <laughs> that person's certainly not a Christian because they're boasting, they're defying God, even in this lecture on chemistry, when, when they should be saying, no, God gave us this chemistry. This is thinking God's thoughts after them, and instead they were exalting themselves and denying the existence of God. It, it stay on the topic, was, was so to say. Stay on the topic. Here, we think also, we think also about how God can sustain man uh, apart from bread. So bread is important, but uh, God provided manna from heaven. And John, uh, that he ate locusts and wild honey. It wasn't bread. God, uh, Christ affirmed the goodness of God in his character, in his providence, his work. Here we think about the second attack. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... On their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The second attack was the entire opposite of the first attack. First attack was the temptation so that you would uh, result in doubt and despair. The second attack was the exact opposite, is that you would, uh, you would go towards presumption. Hey, uh, we can do anything, right? I can just throw myself down and God will, will lift me up and protect me. Well, here, this is putting God to the test. This was uh, the second parry that Jesus gave. You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. We ought not to, uh, to presume on God's protection. Uh, here, we think also about limiting God, requiring God's supernatural provision. Hey, God will, he will drop down manna from heaven. Well, hey, Young man, young woman, why don't you pack your own lunch? <laughs> That's called the ordinary provision, is that there's food in the fridge, pack it, think ahead, think three hours ahead for what you'll need for lunch. No, I'm going to trust that God will drop down. No, don't do that. It's presuming on God, tempting God. The attack three, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Satan was claiming, hey, I'm the rightful owner of all, all these kingdoms. If you bow down and worship me, this is called the get-rich-quick method. Have, have your own it all quickly. Jesus, 
he parried, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus was calling also his claim, you don't own all those things. God rightfully owns those things. And in fact, Jesus would then be the inheritor because he humbled himself even at the point of death, even death on the cross, that he would be the rightful owner of all those things. And he willingly shares it with you, his people. We think about the ultimate goal in the usage of the word. 2 Corinthians 10.5 We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. <clears throat> this is what we ought to do with the word is bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We think about the temptations of our own flesh. I need to have it and I need to have it now. And then we think about the word. The word comes in. Here are these barriers. Here are these fences. God has given, given them to us to protect us. We ought not to transgress them. Think about the world. The world is constantly trying to sell you things. Any, any device that you have, whether it be a TV or a computer or your phone, that these things pop up. And they're trying to sell you things. You need to buy this. The world tells you that you're lacking. But the word tells us that all that we need for life and godliness, God has provided for us through his son, through the Holy Spirit. God has not left us as orphans. He has provided us the Holy Spirit. And you think about the devil. We answer the devil with the truth of God's word. You think about some of the other uses in specific situations. Response to persecution. Psalm 119 Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. Think about affliction, when affliction comes your way, which it will. Psalm 119, 153, look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. What about when tempted with lust? You think about the very words that Joseph spoke, Genesis 39, 9. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? What about temptations to pride? We read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 8. When your flocks and herds multiply, when your silver and gold multiplies, then your heart will be lifted up that you will forget God. Here, we ought to understand that it is God who fed us in the wilderness that he might humble us and test us. Right? That we ought not to forget him. This is what happens when things go well, when we become wealthy. We forget God. Whatever verses you point to, that you ought to have them. That these aren't the only ones. These are just mere examples. But you and I ought to be able to say, God has given us his word. That there is a legitimate protection in each of these circumstances. We think also about the offensive use of God's word. It's not to offend others, not to insult them. It's not to ridicule them. That should never be our goal. Rather, it's to advance the kingdom of God. We do that when we bear witness of the gospel. We think about the, the work of commanding sinners to repent. It's not, this is my opinion, it's, this is what the word of God proclaims. Is the king, the almighty king of all the heavens and the earth, that he commands repentance. 
that he commands obedience. He commands belief in Jesus Christ. Are you and I trusting that God is still calling sinners to faith and repentance even today? This is bearing witness of our true joy and our peace, our delight and our joy, that our God is the one who has given us his word, that we have received the sword of the Spirit, that we should desire to be skilled with it, that we should desire to use it well, that we would use it for his glory, that we would use it to honor him, and that you would be protected from the attacks of the evil one. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father.